New Media Comedy Worldwide Studios. New Media Comedy Worldwide presents Comedy Legacy Series with Jim Mendrinos. And now, your host, Jim Mendrinos. Hello, everybody. I'm Jim Mendrinos, and welcome to the Comedy Legacy Series. We have a really fun guest for you tonight, one of the most sought-after late-night writers in all of television. He lives in Los Angeles. He private coaches uh, comics, especially comics looking to develop late-night sets. He's been a late-night writer for Politically Incorrect, for Late Night with David Letterman, for The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, uh, numerous other shows. Uh, he was one of the creators of The Mind of Mencia, um, <clears throat> and he's been my friend for over 30 years. Um, I do want to say this uh, about Gabe Abelson. One of the reasons why I asked him to come on the show isn't just because of how much he knows, it's because of how much he loves comedy and how much he loves helping comics. When I got my first television appearance, uh, and this is something I will always remember, um, it was a show called Comedy Compadres, and Gabe was one of the more veteran comics at the club I mainstayed in, which was the comic strip. And when I got the show and I was running the minutes in, in anticipation of going out to LA to record the show, Gabe was one of the comics who came and sat and watched my set and gave me some feedback on what to do, what not to do for a television set. And I've always remembered that and it's gonna be nice catching up with them. So please help me welcome to the Comedy Legacy Podcast, Mr. Gabe Anderson. All right, so this one's going to be super fun for me, guys. It is a Comedy Legacy podcast, and I'm actually joined by one of the people that when I was young and first passed at the comic strip, studied. I studied him like he was a university course, you know, like he was a textbook, and I was about to get quiz. Uh, and we've known each other for way too many years. Um, haven't seen each other in the longest time, so I was delighted when he said he'd jump on board and do this. Uh, Gabe Abelson is my guest, Gabe. Thank you so much for jumping on with me. Thank you, Jim. Um, it's just, it's such a kick. It's so great to see you. And uh, um, God, I, I was not the guy to study, but thank you for the <laughs> Oh, please. I remember so many late nights at the Strip. I remember one late night at the Strip, uh, you brought a keyboard of sorts with you. And, and yeah. after yeah. the show, we were playing around, jumping around. I, I think Joe Bolster joined us for a song or two, you yeah. know. God, that's right. That was the five minutes that I experimented uh, putting uh, music in my act because I've been playing since I was six, and uh, you know, I decided now it was much much nicer traveling without that extra cumbersome keyboard. Well, you don't need it. You've never needed it. You've had so many, you know, so much great material over the years. Um, I want to start by doing something that uh, by talking about something that joke you probably don't even remember doing anymore. Um, but the, there's an adage in, in comedy that comedy is tragedy plus time. And I remember uh, that there was a shooting at a McDonald's, one of the first big shootings that had ever happened. And the night of the shooting, the, the very next time I saw you perform, you had this wonderful joke about how you, sh you, shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't need protection at a McDonald's. I'm going for fries, cover me. Um, and it absolutely destroyed. And I, I always wondered, you know, when so many comics were playing it safe, you would tackle some subjects topically that were raw wounds. What is it about, about that that made that attractive to you? And 
Why do you think you got away with it, whereas some other comics might not have? Um, it, it's a funny thing uh, that, that uh, I mean, not there's nothing funny about the incident. Well, I guess I found maybe something funny about it. But uh, um, I, I, I've noticed really since starting to write monologue a, a couple of decades ago that um, it, you can't talk about a tragic celebrity. Well, it's, it's tragic too. Uh, a specific tragic death of somebody that everybody knew or had heard of that's never going to work but if something i mean i i i i'm actually thinking i don't know how i can uh, you can talk about death but how i got around a mass shooting is i i think the way uh it was specifically to avoid to be so careful to not victimize anyone to take it away from that to make a statement, um, you know, I'm going for fries, cover me, saying this should not be happening. I think it's all about the spin and the angle on it. You can talk about pretty much anything. I mean, you know, the late, great uh, Bob Schimmel did a whole album about cancer, um, and it was hilarious. And, uh, you know, I think pretty much any subject can be approached if it's approached from the right direction. Um, if I had minimized the crime, which I don't think I did, but if I had minimized it, I think it, uh, it would have tanked. Yeah, it's one of the things that I've noticed that were comics and, and before you, you became known as a television writer and a late night writer specifically, you, you were a headlining comic for years in the New York area. Um, some comics just don't have the stomach to try something that's a little bit risky where you never shied away from it. Is that just in your makeup? Is that a conscious choice? You know, honestly, I mean, I think I became, uh, sadly, <laughs> I mean, hearing this is very interesting um, because I, I think, sadly, I became a much safer comic as I got older. Um, I was more rebellious and more willing to take chances uh, back then. And I think, I think part of that was not being as enthusiastic as I was, you know, because when I got into TV, I just quit stand-up for, for years, for 12 years. Um, and, and, and I think uh, I, I just didn't have, I don't know, I, I, I do think in a sense that I lost that, that edge, and, but I shifted it over to, to, uh, uh, to a different type of writing. Um, now, you, like you said, you did shift over and it's now, I, I think you're 23 years since the Letterman gig? Is uh, no, uh, 19. 19 since the Letterman gig. All right, so it's 19 years since the Letterman gig and you've been writing for television for the longest time now. Um, I know you're back in stand-up, which you should be back in stand-up, but um, is there a difference between writing for yourself and writing for a late night host? Absolutely, uh, especially Dave, because, you know, I, I look at it this way. I look at stand-up as being um, written through inspiration. You can sit home and say, I'm going to write an hour on going to the supermarket, but it's not going to be the same as if you go to the supermarket and, and you experience things, you know, like the pen uh, that's not really a pen, that's a plastic stick that's always missing from the pad. It's like who's stealing sticks, you know, that don't write. And then they say, sign with your finger, nothing comes out. 
And then, yeah, that's why there's credit card fraud. And, you know, and then you try again with your finger. It's so shaky. It looks like it was written by Catherine Hepburn sitting on a washing machine. You know, I mean, stuff like that is stuff that, you know, I had sold those jokes to someone, but um, it's something that I wouldn't have thought of being home. So it's experiential. Whereas monologue writing is through perspiration only because half the joke is written for us. The setup's written already. So it's now just finding, we don't have to think of premises. We just have to think of the punchline. Of course, that's the difficult part, but you can sit down for a couple hours or I can sit down for a couple hours and write 20 monologue jokes. I don't think I write 20 stand-up jokes a year, you know, but, <laughs> but I have to do it every day. Um, so in terms of writing for someone else's voice, for me, Dave was, was the easiest person to ever write for, not the easiest, but his voice was so specific. And I still hear jokes in his voice to this day, even if I'm trying to write for somebody else sometimes, um, uh, you know, because he did so much self-deprecating humor because monologue, like I said, is external standups, internal, bearing your soul, peeling back the layers of the onion, whereas monologue is all um, looking outward. Uh, but Dave was one guy, as was Craig Ferguson, really, who did bring his personality a lot to it. Um, so for instance, actually, maybe my uh, uh, favorite moment on, on Letterman was, you know, when he had the quintuple bypass surgery and, and it was very touch and go, fortunately made it back totally healthy. Um, and then it was a very moving show. We brought his whole medical team on, he thanked them one by one. And so I had a joke that night on that show that made it on the second, across the second, third page of the New York Post, which was very exciting. And there's no one else that could do this joke. It's not particularly funny. And the joke was, Dave says, um, you know, when I found out I needed a quintuple bypass, my entire career flashed before my eyes. And honestly, it was mostly awkward silences. <laughs> Which is, you know, I mean, Dave is the only guy That's... that puts that joke. And so there was always, he had um, um, templates, sort of. Mm -hmm. Like, he, he, there was a joke that he would always do about, uh, he'd say, uh, you know, Paul, there's a guy stands outside the Ed Sullivan Theater and every day on my way to work, he gives me the finger. You know the guy, and Paul would go, yeah, yeah, I know the guy, Dave. He said, well, today, because it's summer, he faxed me the finger from the Hamptons. So once you have, not my joke, but a funny joke, but uh, once you have those templates, you know you know how many, he did the cab driver's jokes and the rats yep. uh, sanitizing their nuts and all of those, once you have those templates, it was sort of easy to fill in the blank. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about that, because when um, you were kind enough to make me one of the facts contributors when you were there, you, uh, you told me, send stuff in, we'll try and see if Dave likes any of it. And after two days of sending it in, you picked up the phone, you called me and you went, okay, he's got writers that already do that. I need you to do something else. When people are contacting you and trying to work on a late night show, what are the mistakes they're making? Because I, I was very much sending in things that other writers would clearly cover because they're on staff. And you were you were pushing me other places. What are the other mistakes you see people do? Um, oh boy, there's so many mistakes. I don't, I, I don't remember. And by the way, I asked you to do it on merit, not because we're friends. Because I know. If you couldn't do it, I wouldn't have done that. And I knew what a great joke writer you were. Um, oh, thank you. The mistake I, I make with people uh, with, uh, that I see people that I work with, uh, and I work with people all the time, uh, late night mono, and I work with people from beginners to people already on staff in different countries around the world. Um, the biggest mistake 
uh, is number one, number one is not being concise enough. Like this is something I don't think is any book in any book, but really a monologue joke should be three lines or less on the page. Um, and so, and also it's gotta be more than one sentence. That's something I've been running into with a few students lately. Uh, you can't have the buildup that you need and the surprise you need to generate in one sentence. So there's gotta be the first sentence a setup, second sentence a punchline, and sometimes a bridge in between. Um, mm -hmm. Because it's almost like an art, almost like a story to a well-written monologue joke. Well, clearly you also need to, the spaces, the periods, the commas to let the person inject their personality. Exactly, and it's funny you mention that because somebody we know that's been in comedy for many years, who's very, very anti-Oxford comma, <laughs> you know, saw, uh, saw a, a joke that I wrote and said, why do you have a comma before the end? She said, I've never heard a good explanation for it. And I said, I think, this will be a decent explanation. I said, the reason I have it on jokes only is for a mental pause, for timing for the reader. So the reader reads it the way I want them to hear it. It does cause you to pause more. So punctuation, I think, is very important. However, another thing I learned is never put something in bold or italics. Uh, try not to, because basically you're telling them, here's how you need to tell the joke. You know, if they don't know the funny part, they wouldn't have that job. Um, so the other, uh, the other issues uh, um, that I encountered, the most common mistake other than that is not having the punch word at the very end of the joke. They have the punch line or the punch word in the middle of the punch line or the whole punch line is the joke, doesn't work. It's gotta be the setup has to be the climb up the roller coaster and then including the punchline, and then as soon as you hit the punchline, that's got to be a sudden drop. Um, I, can I give you an example? Please. Like, uh, um, I probably, I don't know if you'd do this joke anymore, although I always tell um, aspiring late night writers in their packets, another mistake, stay away from first date subjects. Stay away from sexual orientation, race, disease, death. Once you got the job, you can take whatever chance you want. But why have your packet thrown in the garbage because of content? Have it thrown in the garbage because they didn't find it funny enough, but never because of content, because that's something that's controllable. Um, but uh, uh, so anyway, so this joke was, uh, uh, and what I loved about Dave too, was that if he liked a joke on a certain holiday, he would do it every year on that holiday. He didn't care. Like he could do some of my jokes years after I left the show. Uh, and this one was on Halloween. He said, Halloween in, uh, in Greenwich Village, New York. Halloween in the village is something to see. Only in Halloween in the village can you see a man in high heels and a dress on his way to pick up a costume. <laughs> so costume is that drop. You know, everything makes sense up until then. Yeah, guy on Halloween, high heels and a dress in the village all makes sense. And then, you know, you, you get them at the end. And one more example that I think in terms of construction, which ties into another thing that beginners uh, make a mistake. And Joe Toplin, my good friend Joe Toplin, talks about it in his book, Writing for Late Night Television, is finding the handles in the setup. Because 90% of monologue jokes are two or more completely separate ideas tied together in a funny and unexpected way. And when you find that perfect you find those handles and you find that perfect place where they intersect, that's when the joke comes out. 
So this was during the Lewinsky scandal, and I'm not proud of it now, but we ended with a Monica joke almost every night because it was a blue joke, but clean enough to tell on CBS. And because it was blue, the audience would always laugh louder at it. So we put it last. We had the closing joke and we worked backwards. And the joke was after Clinton got caught, I read in the paper that he hired two spiritual advisors to come and pray with him every week in the White House. So I said, there's got to be a joke here. So the joke was President Clinton hired two spiritual advisors to come and pray with him in the White House, just so we need more people in the Oval Office on their knees. So <laughs> again, not proud, but it did the job. But It's a great joke. The way the joke was written was just so we need more people on their knees in the Oval Office. And this is and this was already I had been doing this for a few years and I realized that's funny, but not as funny as putting knees at the very end. So sometimes you even have to mangle the language a bit to get that punch word where you need it. And so because the punch word is at the end, the essential information in the setup has to be at the end of the setup to get the, to remember for the audience to remember it for the punch word. So in other words, you would never say President Trump met with Kim Jong-il at 12 noon on a Thursday at the palace. Uh, it would, that would be completely reversed, non-essential information first. At 12 noon, palace, North Korea, President Trump met with Kim Jong-il. So you remember that because that's going to be what the joke is about. So just the last thing I'll say on that are the two handles in that joke were President Clinton, uh, with the Monica scandal and spiritual advisors. So I go through a mental Rolodex showing my age right there, the Rolodex, but this yeah. is how I can describe it. Going through a mental Rolodex of associations. Well, what ties into Monica? Spiritual advisors, they wear robes. Maybe there's something with the Monica's blue dress and the stain. Now ah, that's stretching it a bit. What else? They, they pray, they're on their knees, and that's the light bulb moment where you found your two topics intersecting perfectly and the joke pops out. I wanna kind of touch on two things that, that intersected here. One, you talked about how the joke doesn't have to be grammatically correct. And that it's a hard thing for comics to learn. Uh, I remember a particular conversation I had with you and Wolfberg about not changing one of my jokes because I wanted to make it more grammatically correct. And the two of you were explaining to me why I shouldn't. And my little 19 year old mind at that time had no idea what the hell you two guys were talking about, but I just trusted and went with it. But um, early for my set, I had a joke about, uh, I, uh, I hated birthdays growing up. I remember one birthday in particular, my mother took me out to a beehive, gave me a stick and told me it was a pinata. And it, that joke, the word it refers back to stick grammatically. But, you know, if I changed it any other way, then I wouldn't get pinata as, as the bump word. So for, for comics that are writing, you know, for me, I had to be taught that. I had, I had you and Wolfberg basically sitting there going, no, don't rewrite that joke. For you and guys like Wolfberg, it was instinct. How did you know to do that? How did you know to put the keywords at the end? Do you remember uh, David Say? Oh yeah. I'm trying to get him on the show. Oh, he was great. Um, wow, you should have turned to Mike. <laughs> turn don't worry about it. Can I yeah. okay. Go run. Go do it. Okay. You want to. Turn it off. Sorry Please about run. that. Yeah. Don't even worry about it. That's that's the great thing about a podcast. You never know what's going to happen. Like all kinds of craziness can happen at any given moment. And, and in this case, that's the craziness that's happening. <laughs> <laughs> but you were talking about David Say. I love David Say. David Say's, you know, one of those comics that nobody 
from the newer generation knows, but everyone should know. And may have done more Tonight Shows than anyone in history, I think. At one point, we, I know we had. Yeah, it, it's either him or it's Tom Dreesen. One of so, those two guys is the record holder. As lousy as my memory is, I, I can tell you exactly the moment when I learned that. Um, I'd worked with him a bunch of times on one-nighters and weekends, uh, you know, opening for him. He was a, a national headline, big national headliner. And he had a joke in his act about uh, taking the SATs. Uh, you ever do this? That was his whole thing. You ever do this? You ever do this? Uh, and you put the answer accidentally for the number two in the number one spot, number three in the number two spot, and you get through the whole SAT and you realize you got to erase. Now you erase. Now you have a smudge. Try to erase the smudge. Now you have holes. Just then the teacher says, pencils down. And you get back to test scores. You realize you have the aptitude of a rhesus monkey and you spend the rest of your life making planters out of ragu spaghetti jars. <laughs> um, and it's just from memory, I'm sure it was worded better than that. But the last part I remember really well, because this was that moment. And I had heard him do this on a number of shows. Never thought there was anything weird about that line. And then one day I'm listening to him and I went, wait a minute, why do spaghetti jars? That doesn't even make sense. So I said to him, David, you got to say spaghetti sauce jars. He said, no, because that would ruin the rhythm of the joke. The mind fills that in, which is why you never noticed it, he said to me. And he said, it's like a speed bump in the joke. Spaghetti sauce jars. It just doesn't sound right. So the audience fills that in in their mind. You know, it's like the words you see with the whole paragraph is jumbled except for the first and last letter, yet the brain can read it very easily, yeah. um, process it easily. Uh, so I, that, I never forgot that. Um, and I learned how important that, you know, that, that sometimes it, it, it does, like you said, you have to mangle uh, the language a bit. Um, but that said, it brings me to another mistake is very often I'll get submissions from my students and there will be a missing period here, or a word is capitalized that shouldn't be, or sometimes even a mistake as bad as using their, T-H-E-I-R, for their, T-H-E-R-E. Yeah. And I tell them, again, these are avoidable mistakes. If a, you know, because I used to have to read packets. I know what this is like. If, a, if the show reader's reading packet, the head writer's reading packets, and he sees five grammatical mistakes in your third, you know, in your first three jokes, Psychologically, you can't help but think, you know, if this person's not willing to put in the time to prove their stuff, I don't really want to invest that much time in, in reading their stuff. So while you do want to be, you know, grammatically correct in that sense, yeah, the wording, you, you just have to put the wording in that, that's going to make that punch word pop. And I do want to talk, you know, I still want to go back to the other point I wanted to make. But this is really important because um, while you were off running, uh, doing, you know, late night shows, uh, I ran a television show called Thunderbox. And it was syndicated show, not tremendously popular, you know, low budget uh, sports, but we had writers. And then when I was running the show, we had to hire a writer. And I'm sure you had this. You put out a call for writers and you get a stack of packets bigger than you are. And you're reading through hundreds of them if not thousands of them. And as, you know, my small staff, it was my job. I'm sure uh, a show like Letterman, you had interns and other people that at least vetted the, the really lousy ones for you. But I don't oh, think people realize. I wish I had. 
but no. No, I don't think people realize that, you know, it takes one mistake to go on the reject bio. And as somebody who's made that decision, can you, can you just address that a little bit? Yeah, um, you know, there, there's so many factors, so many, like I said, avoidable mistakes. Like the packets that I would read last, and I get these again from students sometimes, people capitalize every letter and don't put extra space between their jokes. And I look at that and I go, I don't wanna read this, this is too difficult. And it, I'm not gonna throw it away, but it's gonna be the last thing I read. You want, your job is to make the head writer's job, uh, job, the reader's job as easy and as pleasing on the eyes as possible. So um, I even recommend, you know, 12 point aerial type. I think it's the easiest to read one and a half spaces uh, uh, with two spaces in between jokes. Because for me, that was the easiest to read. I, you can, you know, you can pick whatever font you want, but it's very important to to really have it look look good. Professional. To read. Look professional. Yep. Um, now you had also talked about uh, David Say telling you that the audience is filling in parts, um, and I want to go back to the uh, Halloween joke you wrote for Dave because part of I, I think what the audience is bringing in is their own preconceived notions, is their own idiosyncrasies and their own stereotypes. Um, the Halloween joke relies heavily on village and the stereotype of, you know, the parade being more of a gay themed event so that when the joke comes costume, there's the surprise, there's the dropout to it. Um, how much do you pay attention to what you believe the audience should know when you're crafting a joke? That's um, a really good question. I, I tell people to always shoot for a 97%, say, recognition rate of references. Like, I'll get packets from people that are just too inside the beltway, you know. And if you're talking network, unless maybe it's Colbert that, that, that's a, a bit more of an a intellectual uh, show. Uh, for network, um, you know, once you get past President, Vice President, Secretary of State, Speaker of the House, you're almost too inside at that point. Um, that's why I try to steer people away from sports. You know, many women and many guys don't follow sports. So unless it's, you know, Michael Jordan announcing he's going to play baseball or Tiger Woods' divorce, um, it's probably going to be too inside to get the major laugh that you're looking for. So you want to shoot for, for a very high recognition rate. All right. So now you've also developed television shows. Uh, one in particular, you, you started telling me the process off air. And I think this is important for people to understand. When you're a writer and you're a quality writer, you get trust from people. Um, and you were on the pilot development team for the Mind of Mencia. Yes. And when you literally showed up for the first meeting, there wasn't even a concept? Um, you know, there, there were concepts floating around, but yeah, the first day I started, uh, I was like, okay, what's, you know, what's the structure of the show? What are we doing? And there was, um, it just pointed to a blank whiteboard and me, and uh, there's only one other writer, Jeff Schimmel. <laughs> we just looked at it and what? And, and then they were like, you have, you have three weeks. You know, that's when this is going up. So there was a lot of scrambling and a very skeleton staff, uh, skeletal staff, just me and Jeff and a couple of, uh, you know, I think it was one PA 
Um, um, but um, it, it actually, it's funny because I, I was going to do that show and then I got an offer. At that time, Comedy Central was non-union. Mm -hmm. uh, but be before it went to series, I got an offer from The Tonight Show. And it was like, how do you say no to The Tonight Show, which was union and, and pension and health and The Tonight Show, show yeah. I knew, I've known since I was, you know, cognizant of life. Um, so uh, I, I, I took that gig. Um, but I, we did do one thing in the pilot that may be my favorite remote that I've uh, worked on, um, which was uh, there's a sign out here on the four or five freeway as you get towards the border of three people run, and you may know this because people talked about this bit, three people running across the highway. And so um, it's clear who they were trying to depict. And so uh, we took to the streets and Carlos was asking Latinos and African-Americans and white people, who are they trying to depict in this sign? You know, putting them on the spot sort of. And then, you know, if someone would say, I don't know, Mexicans, and then Carlos, because he could do this, would say, wouldn't it be more authentic Mexican if it was this? And he had a bunch of signs. And the next one was like 15 family members, you know, completely politically incorrect, um, which he can get away with. And and uh, um, so it was going out and basically making people really uncomfortable. That's another mistake, too, is that when people start writing for late night, even when they already have gotten to the point where they get the job, a lot of times they write remotes, which are field pieces. Um, for the people who are listening don't know, that's everything outside the studio that's shot. Um, they write stuff that requires a pedestrian to say something funny back or to do something funny. And that's a, a critical mistake, is relying on the audience to bring the funny. That's why um, jaywalking was such a brilliant idea, because all you have to... All you need is for someone to not know the answer. And especially, and this happened all the time, um, if it was a teacher or, you know, or somebody that really should know the answer to yeah. the American history question. And then, of course, Jay would riff on that. So, and, and we would go out there for four hours, Jay and I and a production assistant, Jamie. And if there wasn't, uh, we didn't get what we needed, we'd go back for another two or three hours the next day. And there were plenty of people that did know the answer. More people knew the answer, but those weren't the people we used. We used the people that didn't. Um, so it's that kind of thing where the reaction is, is the funny is guaranteed yeah. rather than mining for it from people. Because you'll be out on the street all day before you get that. Oh, yeah. Now, now let's talk a little bit about that because your specialty was monologue jokes. When, when you first started on Letterman, I believe you, you replaced Bill Sheft. Yeah. Um, as, as the uh, chief monologue writer on Letterman. Yeah. Um, and um, much like, you know, my, my uh, tenure over at SNL, they keep the monologue people like they keep the weekend update people. They're separate and, and not doing much. And then you're over at the Tonight Show and you're doing remotes, you're doing desk pieces, right. you're doing monologues. Well, it was very unusual uh, in that at Letterman at that time, not, not previously on NBC, but at that time at CBS, there was only one monologue writer at the show, uh, which was Bill, and the rest was the fax team. Um, and so when I took over, it was the same thing. I added a couple people to the fax team, uh, and we had a couple guys on retainer, um, but there was nobody else on staff writing writing monologues, so it was sort of my own fiefdom there. Um, and by the way, I, I owe Bill my career, you know, uh, um, so 
you know, he, he was the one that enabled that to happen. And I never thought, I didn't really have a plan for my monologue writing career. I mean, it's interesting how it started. It started with me doing warm up for Politically Incorrect, never having thought of writing a monologue joke before. And then just thinking one day, well, maybe I can write one of these and asking the producer if I could send one in. And uh, I sent some in the first night and, you know, he gave me the talk about, you know, there's only six jokes in Bill's monologue and you're going to have to write a lot. Hopefully get one on. That's 50 bucks a joke. And I tried it in the first night. Half the monologue was mine. And I, it was it was an awakening. It was I didn't even know I could do this. And the trajectory of how fast things happen showed me that what I thought I was destined to do stand up was not my greatest skill. Um, I mean, I got to a certain point, but I know it was probably as far as I was going to get, whereas monologue, it, it, everything happened very quickly. Um, but um, so, yeah, so, so um, uh, yeah, I forgot where we were at, but. Um, well, I was, I was asking what, what was more liberating for you when you were just doing monologue at Letterman or when you were doing yes. everything? So until then, it had just been politically incorrect and Letterman was just monologue. Once in a while, I'd submit a top 10 if I had free time, but I didn't have much free time. I get to Leno and everybody's writing for everything. Everybody's writing monologue. Um, every, it's a whole team. We work on, like when we would do fake interviews with President Bush, everybody would write, you know, questions or things that Jay would say. The head writer um, would, you know, uh, call everything and, and put the whole thing together. Um, and uh, and even if I came up with, an idea, basically whoever came up with the idea for, a specific jaywalking would be the one that produced the event. But the staff would write questions along that line. Like one of mine was on Flag Day. Um, it was basically asking people, do you know what today is? Uh, you know, and, and there were some great reactions. But in, in any case, yeah, suddenly um, I was doing, uh, uh, you know, once in a while I would have original pieces on like a commercial parody. And it was unbelievably exciting for me to go from just writing jokes. I gave Jay an idea uh, uh, for a bit. I, I wanted to do a fake commercial um, like the George Foreman grill called the Holy Grill. And the premise was, and Jay sets it up by saying, you know, a lot of people are finding um, religious icons in food. Like, you know, a woman saw Jesus in the Dorito. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, in fact, we have a new sponsor. I'm embarrassed to show this. You know, and then we go to the commercial parody and it's the Holy Grill. A grill will imprint your favorite sandwiches with religious figures. You get wise men on wheat, Buddha on a bun, Moses on a matzah, you know, whatever. And then sell it for thousands on eBay. So I said, I give him this. He said, yeah, let's do it. And so I said to somebody else on staff, what does let's do it mean? What do I do now? And he said, well, go meet with the uh, set department. Tell them what you need. We, you know, we had a blank, empty sound stage, padded room. Um, and I said, I need something that looks like a kitchen. You know, we had, I, I had no idea what I was, and he said, you mean a kitchen? Yeah. You want two walls, three walls? Give me three. Um, and then uh, he said, uh, <laughs> and I, he said, anything in the kitchen? I said, well, if it's not too much trouble, I'd like sort of one of those islands where a woman can have a computer on there. He said, no, it's not too much trouble. This is what we do. And then he said, now go meet with casting. So I go to the casting person. I look through a folder. Of, uh, uh, of actresses to play it. I picked the actress. I even met with wardrobe to pick the wardrobe. Um, and then I directed the shoot and then I would get the card. I'd go to the edit bay and the edit, I'd put it together with the editor. So it was almost like being a mini 
filmmaker or commercial uh, director, uh, you have you had to wear hats of the writer, producer, and director. Um, and it was thrilling because here was something I'd written on the page. And by the way, I come down four hours later to the empty soundstage. There's a kitchen to die for. There's a Viking stove, a sub-zero stainless steel fridge, a window with the light coming through and a tree in the yard. It's like, oh my God, this is so cool. It was, it was, um, yeah, it was thrilling. It was a yeah. long time for me. I'd been a joke writer for, <clears throat> at that point, uh, 25 years. Yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit about progression because you worked on a lot of shows when they were new and had no budget. And then obviously what you're talking about is the beauty of a show with a really good budget. You walked in and it, it had the team in place, uh, politically incorrect. I think there were five guys, you know, back in the Comedy Central days. Yeah. You yeah. know, and, a very, small writing staff. very small writing staff. Yeah. Now, do, do you feel more stressed? Do you, or I, I've had people mention that it's when it's smaller, they feel the stress of producing because there's nobody else to rely on. And then when they're in the bigger staffs with more budgets, they're feeling the pressure of, oh my God, I have to produce because everything's on the line and so many people are depending on me. So it's different kind of pressure. Did you ever feel any burden of pressure on either side or is it always just, I'm gonna write? <clears throat> well, um, Letterman being my first job and arguably maybe my, my biggest job in television, uh, you know, Dave, unlike Jay, Dave was a very, very private guy and really didn't have any interactions with writers. Um, and so, but the monologue was so important to him. It was just me and Dave and Tony, the cue card guy in his dressing room every day going over the jokes for an hour, which was, you know, my dream as a comedian coming up. I mean, to, to be doing this and, and going over them and discussing them. Um, uh, but it was extremely stressful. It was, it, was, it was a dream come true, but very stressful because as you said, it was just me and the factors and it's not like the factors were gonna take any heat for anything. So um, I had to deliver the goods and it was, yeah, it was, it was stressful. Um, and there is stress also on the small staff having written for Politically Incorrect uh, as a staff writer later on. That's what brought me out to LA in fact. So it sort of came full circle. Um, it was stressful in that you, I had to have, you know, I was, I, I was somewhat politically savvy. I have to be to write for a late night show, but this was a whole different level on a much deeper level. Uh, I, you know, having to read the times cover to cover every day, um, not having to, I mean, this was like something I should have been doing anyway. Um, but you had to be able to argue with him. You know, our writers meetings were fascinating because they were arguments um, very, you know, very often um, you know, Bill's very strident in his beliefs, right, left, doesn't matter. Um, uh, but, but quite often, writers would disagree. And so it became an argument over the topic. And if I didn't agree with his take on the topic, I would have to find a way to sell his uh, and to back up his belief um, and still make it palatable enough for me to live with myself. <laughs> um, but uh, so it was very challenging and it was very, a uh, uh, very intense day. And, um, and uh, but it was great. It was really just very stimulating. Now let's, let's talk a little bit about that because that's something I don't think people understand quite enough. Um, for my years of writing for people and I also write for comics 
road comics as well. And I know you've done uh, a lot of that over your career as well. You're not writing your vision. You're not writing your topics. You're not writing, you know, purely what you want to write. A lot of times they're coming to you going, hey, I'm doing a corporate gig. I need 10 minutes on this. And sometimes you're writing stuff that you have no interest in or stuff that you have no knowledge of, you know, and, and what's your process when someone comes to you with an assignment and says, hey, I need to, I, I need stuff about this, you know, what can you give me? Um, well, it, you know, if I want to write in their voice and get their take, I'll usually ask them what really bothers you about this? I mean, this is stuff, by the way, uh, um, you know, Judy Carter talks a lot about this in her wonderful book, The Comedy Bible. Um, uh, maybe the best how-to book is for, in terms of stand-up. Um, about, it's never about good stuff. Comedy is never about what you love and anything good. It's about, you know what I hate? You know what scares me? You know what upsets me? So I would usually ask people, what is it, let's say it's a corporate thing, what is it about your job? that really bothers you? What is it about doing business with other companies that's a real hang up? Because it's something everyone in your office will relate to. Um, and that's where I can find the funny. Not like, oh, Jim is a great golfer. He's got the bet. No, that's really not where the funny is. Who's the worst golfer? You know, um, so this is like for, for corporate. Um, so when they come to me for that, and I've written for a lot of award shows too, um, but I'll use the same process there. I'll try and put two things together that are unexpected in a funny way. Um, that's, you know, that's pretty much it. All right. So do you, do you do a lot of research when you write or is it mostly instinctual and you're going by your gut? Uh, I, well, like for a show like Politically Incorrect, I would do a lot of research and we did get to, um, we do get to submit ideas for topics to Bill. Um, not, not an angle, but a topic, you know, do you want to cover prescription drugs, you know, as opposed to marijuana or whatever, whatever the topic was. Um, and he would say yes or no. Um, so basically, I mean, in terms of what I mine for is again, I look for stories that have concrete handles that I can grasp onto and tie together in a funny way. Conceptual, I, I stay away from wordplay. I stay away from puns. Dave taught me that. He almost decapitated me with a cue card once because he hated puns so much. I gave him a pun. I never did it again. Um, not, not in an angry way. It was just like, I hate puns because he used to flip the cue cards. And, um, uh, and so I never did it again. I actually have, can I tell a quick funny story about Please. that? Okay, so you know Tony Darrow, the comic? Yeah. Yeah, I believe this was Tony's joke, actually. It wasn't my joke. Um, so Dave would, I would give him the sheets. I'd, I'd read about 250, 300 jokes. I'd cut it down to about 75 and then give them to Dave. And then he would check off the ones he liked, give them back to me. I'd give them to Tony. The cue card guy, we'd go to rehearsal and with those cards. And I'd always find four or five that I thought he should have picked. And I would throw that in the mix. Sometimes he'd use them, sometimes not. Uh, sometimes he'd explain why he didn't want to do them, and sometimes he didn't. Sometimes he would just say, nope, or yes. So anyway, the words I hated the most, because we had to do eight jokes at Letterman, <clears throat> and I was always hoping he'd pick at least 13 or 14, knowing that he would cut five or six or seven. Uh, and the words that I dreaded the most was hearing were in a box, meaning we don't have a closing joke. 
We're in a box. Yeah. And remember, our rehearsal was at three and going over the jokes and uh, we take to 5.30. So that's not a lot of time if he doesn't like the jokes. I had to then go back to the office, call the faxers and the boys, uh, who maybe we can talk about later, Mulholland and Barry, two guys who were the head writers for Carson for 20 years. Best joke writers, the most unique joke writers I've ever met in the industry uh, um, on their material. Nobody else writes like them. And he, you know, and I would call the boys and I would ask for another round of jokes. And sometimes it really got down to the wire. Anyway, one day, um, it was a joke he didn't pick. And he said, we're in a box. And I said, Dave, this is a closing uh, 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 joke. Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I was talking about the, uh, <laughs> I was talking about the, um, um, the puns. So after that day with the cue card nearly decapitating, I never gave him another pun until I read one one day from, I believe it was Tony Darrow, that almost made me fall out of my chair laughing so hard. And, I, and puns do not usually make me laugh at all. Um, and so I thought, okay, is it just me? And I bring it over to Tony's office, which was right next to mine. And I said, you know, knowing how Dave hates puns, what do you think of this? And he almost fell out of his chair. And I said, okay. He said, I got to show that to Dave. I said, no, don't show it to Dave, but put it on a cue card because I need to first get a promise from him. So he puts it on a cue card and he says, we're in a box. Uh, and I said, well, I have a joke, um, but you have to promise not to yell at me because <laughs> it's a pun. And he said, J just show it to me. I said, no, really promise not to yell at me because I wouldn't show you this normally. And he said, I'm not going to yell at you. Show me the joke. And the joke was, I think this was in the year 2000, the Winter Olympics. There was a skier named Peekaboo Street who won, he was one of those that won like every gold medal and got a million endorsement deals. And so there was an article in the paper that she was taking half the money from her endorsement deals and donating it to a local hospital in her hometown to build a new wing of the hospital. So um, that was the setup of the joke. It was, I made it tighter than that, but the skier Peekaboo Street has just donated, you know, half the proceeds to build a new wing in a local hospital in her hometown. And in her honor, I believe they're calling it the Peekaboo ICU. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it doesn't get much better than that. And no. Dave was just tickled pink. He just loved that. And why wouldn't you show this to me? He said, well, because I know I hate puns. So that's another thing I will say is there are exceptions to every rule. No puns, but you can break that. Lines, jokes, three lines or less, but you can break that if necessary. And can I give one example of that? This joke, I think, was originally maybe six lines, but it had to be by its nature. And it was one he would do every year. He'd say, today, earlier today, they ran the New York City Marathon. Uh, in case you're not familiar with the New York City Marathon, runners start, start out in Staten Island. They run across the Verrazano Bridge. They curve around Brooklyn. Then they go uh, across the bridge into Queens. They go up through Queens, cross the bridge again into the Bronx. Then they go down through the Bronx. They go across another bridge into Manhattan, finally finishing up in the middle of Central Park. You know, it's the same way cab drivers get in from LaGuardia. Yeah. Very Dave kind of joke. Yeah. And it's such a circuitous joke because it has to be. So yeah. it's got to be lengthy for that reason. So for everything that I'll say is a rule, and I will say they're rules, there, there, there are times to break those rules. Now, um, you touched on the boys, you know, uh, uh, earlier, which, you know, comedy writing geeks like you and I, that was legendary. We probably read before him. Uh, for me, my, one of my biggest geek moments in comedy was in New York when I met Joe Ansis 
you know, not only did I meet him, I actually wrote with him. So that, that was a big moment for me. So talk about, you know, first of all, I had no idea you even even met the boys or, or worked with them, uh, you know, but talk a little bit about that because that you're talking about Carson's legendary duo of comedy writers. Not only that, I think they won an Emmy for the an episode of the Mary Tyler Moore show when they were like 17. I mean, they were just geniuses uh, and they were head writers for the Academy Awards and the Oscars. Uh, the, that would be the same show. Uh, the Academy Awards. During the, the Billy Oscars. Crystal years, to, to clarify for everybody. Just, you know, for years and years and years. And because of their Carson connection, and you know how Dave gets about Carson. Yep. Um, they were, he just loved their stuff. And it was so different because many of their jokes didn't have traditional punchlines, but they were so visually funny. You know, the it's so cold, it's so hot jokes that Johnny told. Yep. Those were the boys. And Dave went on to tell them, you know, uh, uh, yeah, it was so cold in New York. I saw a pigeon going to KFC and surrender. You know, that was uh, that was one of the boys' jokes. <laughs> um, but they were great at at, at at humanizing animals. Uh, one of my favorite jokes, and again, no punchline, there was an article in the New York Post about how brazen New York rats were getting, that they were no longer just on the subways, they were out in broad daylight. And Dave just loved the idea of brazen rats. So for two months, the boys just wrote brazen rats jokes, as did the factors, knowing that they liked them. And some of their jokes, I even give it to my students as examples, I have a page of their jokes as examples, uh, one of them were, these New York rats are brazen. Earlier today, I saw one in Rupert's Deli climbing down a hanging salami with a knife in his teeth. <laughs> I mean, who needs a punchline when you can create a visual like that? This is why I say stay away from wordplay. Stay away from puns. As Dave would say, paint the word picture instead. And nobody was better at that than the boys. Brazen rats, I'm telling you. I saw a rat at a Korean fruit stand feeling the peaches. Uh, the, just the idea of a rat being discriminating enough to feel peaches, is, yeah. it's, to me, it's genius. It's the, it's the genius of simplicity. And, um, and in terms of, of, you know, one that's not a visual image, but just twisted logic that works as real logic. One of my favorite jokes of theirs was they said, this is in the year 2000, they said, you know, they say a vote for Nader is a vote for Bush. Well, that's great, but who do you vote for if you want to vote for Nader? <laughs> I mean, that's just genius. And yeah. probably my favorite joke that J Dave ever told got complete silence in the Ed Sullivan Theater, but anyone in comedy anywhere in the U.S. was probably laughing their ass off. It got silenced. And it was the boys' joke. Um, it was, and the joke was, uh, everybody in New York is sick with the flu. In fact, the two guys that wrote this joke got sick with the flu, had to go home, and couldn't finish it. <laughs> An anti-joke. Yeah. What other host in television history tells that joke? No one. And that was one of the things I respected most about Dave, was he would do jokes that just tickled him, even if nobody got it. Yeah. You know. Now, um, you, you broke out the Carson impression. And oh. Oh. one of the reasons why, uh, why you came back on my radar, because we're, co we're connected on social media, but for a while during the pandemic, you were doing Carson monologues about the pandemic um and you've always you've always had an ear for impressions and you've always done them um is that is that your influence is that the, who you studied when you were growing up because you have a tremendous love for all things carson 
I do have tremendous love for I look, I remember sneaking into the living room at five, six years old when my parents were watching Johnny Carson and, you know, and just loving it. Um, even though I didn't understand half the jokes, I just loved it. And um, yeah, he was someone I absolutely looked up to. Um, and, uh, and the jokes that I tried to write for, it started like this. I was watching all the late night hosts doing their shows from home, which, you know, had become more of a, a higher production now. Yeah. But when at first it was just them sitting in a chair and I thought, God, what would Carson be doing during this pandemic? He'd probably be at home doing this too. And then, and in fact, somebody said, you know, you should add a laugh track. And I thought, no, it's even funnier to have it like as low rent as possible. Like Carson mm -hmm. just standing there in front of a curtain uh, doing jokes. And so I would try to write them in his voice, which is very similar to Dave's voice, or maybe I should say that the other way around. Mm -hmm. um, um, you know, uh, they, say, they say that it's more dangerous to uh, touch your groceries than it is to breathe the air outside. Uh, so right now I have my chickpeas in quarantine. My chickpeas in quarantine. You know, not even the funniest joke, but just something that Carson would say. Yeah. Well, I think my favorite was uh, everybody's everybody's so paranoid right now. Uh, in fact, earlier today, Alexa told me I was standing too close. <laughs> yeah, they're 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 quality jokes, but Thank that. You. That homage, that, that learning from people, you know, I think is a, a necessary tool for comics when we first start. You okay. know, who are the, uh, twofold question, who are the people you studied that inspired you to want to do stand-up? And when you got in stand-up, because you started right in the golden time, when you got into stand-up, who are the people that reached back and helped you? For me, it was guys like Barry Berry, you know, Ronnie Shakes, you know, teaching me how to joke right, Kennison you know, taking me on the road with him a little bit. Who are the guys for you? Um, well, I did. I had no, I had too dumb and too stupid to understand how lucky I was like getting into comedy in 1980, just when it broke, you know, until then it was the improv in LA and New York and Catch Rising Star and the comic strip for a couple of years, but there was no road work really. Comics before then worked like the Playboy Club circuit and that sort of thing. Um, so comedy clubs were not a thing until I started. And then, as you know, that was, yeah, like you just said, it was the golden era um, and, and it just kind of blew up. But uh, uh, so when I started, um, I was very influenced by people like uh, the late, great, brilliant, uh, underappreciated Abby Stein. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Dennis Wolfberg was a huge one. Bolster, Joe Bolster was a tremendous influence on yeah. me. Yeah, it was just a monster, you know. Nobody had, uh, well, like Wolfberg and Bolster, both personas, such specific personas. And at Bolster, the writing was just so tight, yeah. um, so well-constructed. Barry, also Barry Barry. Um, Rita Redner was a big one. And what I really loved about Rita is, you know, she was arguably one of the more successful people back then. She was already, you know, touring, oh, yeah. doing very, very well. But she would even, she would run jokes by everybody, even if you would just pass the auditions there. You'd say, what do you think of this line? What do you think of that line? You know, um, she did no ego whatsoever, just to get feedback. And I always encourage that with my students as well. I say, you know, your friends probably won't laugh at your jokes, um, but run it by them anyway. Ask them what they think. Run it by um, professionals uh, that you know, uh, professional comedy writers, uh, before you send in your packet um, and just see, get their take on it. 
Um, although one of my favorite moments involved Rita and Ronnie Shakes. We were at the, uh, uh, at the bar at the comic strip and um, Rita ran a joke by everybody and it wasn't one of her stronger jokes. And, and so there was really not much of a response. And Rita said, well, you know, it's not a joke. It's just a throwaway. And Ronnie Shake said, why wait? Uh, <laughs> Ronnie was the king of being concise. Oh yeah. I never saw somebody that needed less, less syllables to get to the funny. Yeah. He, yeah. he was brilliant with that. Um, I know you teach and you teach a lot. You work with a lot of people individually, helping them shape up their late night packets. And, and you're also help a, a lot of standups, even just get ready for the road. Um, but you dropped a bomb on me earlier about uh, developing a process that prevents you from having writer's block. Ah, yes. Um, this is strictly with monologue jokes and talking okay. monologue jokes. So for years, even in years into my professional career as a monologue writer, um, I would just, you know, find a news story, put it down on the page and just stare at it. Sometimes a joke would pop out right away. And sometimes I would stare for 10, 15 minutes and I knew there was a joke there and I just couldn't find it. I couldn't, I just couldn't grasp it. And so what I discovered was, like I said, half the joke, the setup's already written for you. Mm -hmm. I would go, the first source I would go to that I always recommend to people, believe it or not, even though my politics are very different, the Drudge Report. Something about their headlines really, um, and maybe because they are kind of strident in their uh, uh, politics, uh, I found were great for setups. Another mistake beginners make also, by the way, is they take the setup, uh, they take the headline or the first line of the article and just put it down as their setup. No, you have to take it and put it into a colloquial conversational sentence. You can't just say Trump that, that and not have a verb and not have uh, you, know, you know all these things that make up a sentence, all these components. So I always suggest writing it then saying it into your voice recorder, then going back to the page again. So um, what I would do is, so this was the process that I found to stop that from happening. I would gather setups. I would go to Drudge Report, I would get the topics, and I wouldn't even allow myself to think of a punchline. I would just say, oh, that's interesting. That could be funny. And just put it down on the page, copy, paste, copy, paste. Then I would go to like TMZ uh, for breaking celebrity stories or uh, you know, the AP wire, wherever it was, there's a great site called fark.com, F-A-R-K, like kitchen. It has all those little bizarre human interest stories. Like when Le uh, Leno would say, yeah, the woman in Indianapolis found a finger in her chili at Wendy's, you know, those kind of stories. Um, yep. That's another thing. If, if it's a story that nobody knows about, all the information has to be there in the setup. The problem I see, one of the most common problems with beginning writers is, They'll write a you had to be there setup mm. that is only funny if you read that article or that depends on a word in the in 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 the headline that we haven't seen. So when you hear a woman found her finger in her chili at Wendy's, you've got all the information you need. So yeah. A cool, bizarre story like that. It's got to contain all the information. It's got to be short. If it needs too much to set up, too much information, you got to let it go, especially with numbers. Another mistake. 80% of 17-year-olds find that 20% of their day, the listener checks out. They have to think. You don't want them thinking during the setup. You want to spoon feed it to them. You want them thinking for about a 16th of a second at the end of the punchline to put two and two together. 
Yep. So, um, um, so again, I'm, I'm, I'm I, I deviating from what we were talking about. Um, what were we talking about? Formula and no writer's block. No writer's block, right? So, I, I um, and I guess I got I got the, uh, some sort of block there, some sort of block. <laughs> but it's, I was. It's uh, our age, Gabe. It's our age. It's oh god. So I um, uh, so I would gather setups, and, and before too long, within 10, 15 minutes, I'd have 50 or 60 of them. And the other thing is, I think one of the greatest things, and I hope I'm quoting him correctly, and I hope I'm getting this right, I think they once asked Seinfeld who his greatest influence was as a comic, you know, thinking it would be Pryor or Carlin. Carlin was mine, I can get back to that, because I grew up a block away from him, and I knew his mother when I was a little kid. Uh-huh. And that was very, very big of an influence for me, um, who eventually I connected with George. But um, um, so, uh, uh, yeah, so I would get these 60 setups and I would put them down on the page and I wouldn't allow myself to think of jokes. And now what I would do, once I had them all down, because it's a process of um, attrition, uh, I am jumping around because they're all interconnected. They asked Seinfeld who his you know, hero was in comedy and thinking it would be Carlin Pryor, and he said, Ted Williams. They said, Ted Williams, baseball player? He said, yeah. They said, why? And Seinfeld said, because he failed two out of every three times he tried to do his job, and yet is considered the greatest pure hitter in the history of 150-year history of baseball. And to me, that was so eye-opening, and I think is so important for young writers to remember, you're going to throw out, or you should be throwing out, two-thirds of what you write. People fall in love with their jokes. And as they say in screenwriting, you got to kill your babies. You can't fall in love with your jokes. And so even well into my career, if I needed 12 jokes for a packet, I'd write 50 to get 12. And so the only so the way I found to do that is to get my 50 or 60 setups and then approach it like speed chess with the timer, if that's what it's called. Uh, where I would look at the first setup and I would give myself about a minute and a half to two minutes. If I couldn't think of a joke, I would then move down to the next setup and work on that one. I couldn't think, move down to the next, but I wouldn't give myself more than a couple of minutes. And what that enabled me to do was instead of staring at that same setup for 10 minutes, I would come back to it with completely fresh eyes, almost completely fresh eyes. So I'd think of something maybe that I never would have thought of having stared at that joke. And by the time I kept going through it uh, cyclically, I would sometimes get to joke number eight and go, oh shit, and go back number two. I thought of a, I did think of a punchline for number two and then go back to that. So it enabled two things. Number one, my output was far greater because I was writing more jokes. I wasn't like, I got to write 20 jokes because there would usually be 10 I never even got to that I never thought of punchlines for. Um, And it also stopped me from getting writer's block because I didn't dwell on any single set up for too long beautiful let's um because you've been very generous with your time and we're we're over an hour already i, I do want yeah wow. this is amazing you it's i could actually talk comedy with you for 10 hours and i don't and, even think yeah. you touch the surface um and you know what over the course of our lives we probably have to talk comedy for over 10 hours um i want to talk a, a little bit because we focus so much on on your writing for late night and i know that you're your bread and butter and and what you're most known for but you were not a good stand-up a great stand-up you were one of those guys that you were generous 
<laughs> I, I don't think I'm being very generous. I might be being a little generous, but not very generous. <laughs> um, and you would bring in voices. You would bring in, you know, you would have full scenes constructed with, within your stand-up. You would, you know, you would do more different things to get to a punchline than almost any other comic uh, I've ever seen. Do you think it was that that ability when you were stand-up and honing so many different ways of being funny that enabled you to write so well for all these different shows at Late Night? Wow, that's a great question. I, and some, because it's something that I'd never considered. It's quite possible. But I, I, I think um, the real reason is a character defect. of my, Not a character defect, but I think it's what stopped me from becoming a truly great comedian, which was I was never comfortable. And back then, you know how comedy has changed. Back then, it was very observational. Now, it's way more about the persona. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, sometimes too much about the persona, not enough about the actual craft of joke writing. Yeah. I was never someone that was comfortable with bearing my soul on stage and tearing back those layers. And, you know, the Dave Attell, you know, type of someone that's so in touch with um, uh, their who they are and their, you know, and, and their frailties and their eccentricities. Um, I was much more of an observational comic. And so I think because of that, it lended itself better to late night because I just wasn't okay with revealing that part of myself. I'm not okay, I just wasn't comfortable with it. So it seemed to be a natural progression. Um, and uh, in terms of the teaching, uh, that's really become my first love at this point. You know, I come from a family of professors and I think, so I think it's always been in my blood and I've been deconstructing this stuff. I mean, I've been teaching stand-up since 82, um, well before I was qualified to do it and late night for about 20 years. Um, and it's gotten to the point, like I said, I've deconstructed yeah. stuff so much that I love passing this on to others. And I have students, the head writer of Jimmy Kimmel Live, Gary Greenberg, uh, mm -hmm. has been there 15 years with my student in New York. Um, uh, you know, there's so many, Trevon Free, writer for The Daily Show, who's my student out here in LA. He's been on Samantha B. Um, it's just great to be able to pass on this stuff to people who are young enough to get the gigs um, yeah. and, uh, and, and to see them flourish. I get just as much enjoyment out of that as when I do, you know, as anything I've ever done on stage. And one of my favorite people to work with, and she's far more successful than I could ever have hoped to have been as a comic, is Emma Wilman. I just love yeah. Emma, love Emma. And in fact, it's funny because she was sent to me by Joe Toplin, who wrote the book writing for Late Night. And he said, well, I don't work with stand-ups, but here's the guy to go to. And um, and we've had a relationship now for about three years, and I work with her probably more than anybody else. Now, I, I, I would even hesitate to call her a student because she's, like I said, funnier than I could ever hope to be, but we work really well. She's such a great idea person. Like, everything that comes out of her mouth is funny, but I'm all about structure. And so together, you have concept person, the structure person, and what's so interesting is how I keep working with her despite her tremendous success. And I think that's key. I think, I think the people that really don't get it are the ones who come once and are really far away from having this stuff down and are like, I got it. Um, and fine, they'll learn 
you know, yeah. uh, experientially through being on stage and not getting laughs and then getting laughs. Um, what I think I do is I can cut people's learning curve. I can save them a lot of time and a lot of rejection um, by helping them technically with that process, helping them find the funny. Um, and with Emma, it's just been great. Um, you know, we worked on two of her Colbert sets together and, um, and she's just a delightful person too. So, uh, you know, the greatest actors, Dino Pacino, still have acting coaches. The greatest tennis players have coaches that aren't as good at tennis, but they're incredible coaches. Baseball hitters have hitting coaches. So I, I think it's something that you can never get enough of, which is why, like I said, at this point still, I'll even go to a few late night writers if I have to put together a piece that I truly trust, the veterans, that I, and that I think are brilliant, and say, you know, just let me know, put a star, or put a check mark by the joke that you like. Yep. Um, uh, and so, yeah, so um, so I love teaching. I'm, I'm um, actually building a bigger business out of it now. I do my flappers class, I do Skype classes, but mostly through referral, you know, uh, people like Emma and uh, comics, referring other comics. But I'm about to to launch something much more formal. That's um, that's great. All now over. You're Zoom. also doing stand up too. You're also you're back. I am back, uh, or was back. Yeah. Uh, well, the right now pandemic, none of us are back. But yeah. Post pandemic, you will be back again. The yeah. the interesting thing, and I'm, I'm sure you see this too, is when I started, I was younger than anybody in my audience. Yeah. Anybody. Then I was about the same age, and I remember like doing cruise ships in my 20s and just not really connecting. Um, and then, yeah, I was about the same age as my audience. And now, if I'm working a comedy club, almost always the oldest person in the room. Uh, and so now I have to, the, the approach is completely different. You know, I started, I used to talk about my parents all the time. Uh, it was a comic. I worked with um, at, at one of these Florida condos where there's like a 3,000 seat theater. Mm -hmm. um, and this comic had to have 15, 20 years on me, had to be almost 80 years old. He's talking about his grandmother and his act. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like, okay, when you started 60 years ago, maybe that, but it's that made sense. Yeah. Not that joke. Um, yeah. So it is interesting how you have to change your perspective. Yeah. I found for me, um, loved stand up when I first started it. Then there was a period where, you know, wasn't as much fun. And then, you know, when I got to the point where I didn't have to go out to some hellish weekend room in Western New Jersey for $300 on a weekend in order to make rent, that it got pleasurable again. Do you find it's more pleasurable now that it, it's not your main source of income? Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, lately I have been going, uh, I said I, I played it safe. I did play it safe when I started to get burned out on comedy. And it was, and, and it showed, it was just too much by rote. So after all those years away, coming back was new again. And, you know, I thought I'd be able to just be right where I was. No, when, when you're living in New York and every club is so close, you're doing your four weekend shows, you, you know, you're doing 10, 14 shows a week, you can't help but be just, per, you know, just right there. Not having done it in 12 years, I had to get my sea legs again. But yes, because it was no longer something that I had to do for a living, 
Um, I could, I was willing to take a lot more risks. I wasn't worried. Oh my God, I got to pass at this club or if the owner sees me not do well, you know, that was all gone. So it enabled me to start taking more chances again and having fun and experimenting. That's awesome. Now, if there's uh, somebody who's listening that wants to find you and wants to contact you about coaching or just even trying to pick your brain, where would they find you? Uh, they could either uh, direct message me on Facebook, Gabe Abelson, uh, Instagram, um, Gableson, uh, and um, uh, I'll even give you my email, uh, which is Gabe Writer, very original, Gabe Writer at yahoo.com. Also dating myself. Yeah, yeah, it is. We can get you up to Gmail. Um, I hope that uh, you are willing to come back again. Because I feel like we've just touched the, the tip of the iceberg of what you and I can be talking about. So I would love to have you back again for a future episode and go even further in depth if, if you're willing. Anytime. I, you know, it, it, it's just so great to see you again, to talk to you again, to talk to you about comedy and to hear such great, insightful questions, uh, making me think of stuff that I hadn't thought of previously and Anytime, I'm I'm up for it, Jim. Really well, great. I also I also have to say this because part of this um, podcast came to me because I wanted to be able to pass on what I've learned and what I know the guys have taught me. But I also want to talk about the incredible kindness that was shown to me. I got my first TV gig out of the comic strip uh, show that filmed in Los Angeles called Comedy Compadres, and when I was running the set. Um, you were kind enough to come in and watch and actually say, hey, why don't you flip these two jokes? Go over here. Go do that. And that's going back to, I want to say, 89, 90, you know, way back then. Um, and, you know, you talk to the audience. You didn't do that because I was paying you. You didn't do that because I asked you to. You did that because you saw a new comic that got his first TV show and you understood that I didn't want to fuck it up. And you know, you did that for me. Schaefer did that for me. You know, Bolster did that for me. Wolfberg did that for me. And, and hopefully we can do that for another generation coming up. I feel that way too. I mean, I've never understood the folks that were in the trenches uh, like us and then just didn't do anything like that because you know how important it is. You know, when people sent me packets at Letterman, um, I would try to read, you know, unless it, we were looking for a writer or something, uh, people would just send me packets uh, and I would get one individually. I would read it that day, an individual packet, and I would get back to them by the next day. And, um, <laughs> ah, computers. And, uh, <laughs> and I would get back to them that the next day or sometimes even that day. And the reaction I usually got was, oh my God, I can't believe you read my packet already. Yes, because that's what I would want. I would be sitting on pins and needles if I sent in a packet waiting to hear. So I wanted to do this, do the, you know, treat someone the way I would want to be treated. Yeah. yeah. And all these years later, it shows. Gabe, it's been a delight to have you. And we're actually going to let you go and answer that call. Um, but do come back and visit us again. And I will definitely let you know when this episode is airing. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you so much, Jim. Pardon the interruption. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> All right. Bye, everybody. Wow. I feel like that 
that conversation could have gone another four or five hours. I feel like we just touched the tip of what we could possibly learn from Gabe. It's remarkable when you see someone who's devoted their entire life to craft, and not just the craft of comedy, but the craft of joke writing. Gabe is a master wordsmith. He understands construction of humor better than most of us could ever hope to comprehend. And yet he was incredibly sharing, incredibly free with his knowledge. And I, for one, learned a lot. We're going to have so many other great guests. I'm hoping to bring Gabe back sometime soon. Um, but until then, next week, we're going to have another great comic. You need to tune in and watch. And uh, you can find us on all the places that carry podcasts, uh, or you can watch us every Monday here on YouTube. Uh, for everybody here at the Comedy Legacy Series, I'm Jim Andrinos. Goodbye, everybody. This has been a new media comedy worldwide production.